Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. Thanks for being here this week. Appreciate it, as always. This is a, a different kind of episode. I, I think that you're going to really enjoy it. Definitely if you're someone who likes learning about things uh, and learning about things that you thought you already knew a lot about. This week I'm speaking with Larry Jorgensen, who wrote a few books about Coca-Cola. Now, of course, most of us know all about Coca-Cola. In the interview, I'm going to ask him to kind of explain Coca-Cola like uh, we've never uh, even heard of it. That's a very short uh, time because most people... I think whether you you drink it daily like like I do, or whether you you just grew up with the the ads and the you know Coca-Cola famous bottle, all that kind of stuff, um, you know people people know it. But uh, he's going to go into a little bit more depth and just why Coca-Cola is the most popular, well-known brand in the entire world. What goes into that? The just the marketing genius they've had. The the beginning and, and how bottling actually started with a $1 buy to bottle all of Coca-Cola in the whole country. And that's crazy. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about why you know, there's Coca-Cola bottling factories all over the country and owned by individuals rather than uh, you know one, one big corporation. And we're going to talk about how Coca-Cola created the Santa Claus that we all know and how they kind of hijacked Christmas. So... Just a lot of really, really interesting things that I'm sure that you you never even thought about before, uh, but it's going to kind of make you think the next time you you grab that Coca-Cola bottle. It's definitely a a positive interview. It's not, uh, you know, the inside world of Coca-Cola and the negatives. It's it's not that at all. Coca-Cola is a a really cool company, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy learning. Uh, This is definitely an episode that less about learning about the person and more about learning about uh, history and the Americana behind Coca-Cola and the you know everything I mentioned and then also the collecting and, and why there's Coca-Cola lunch boxes, lawn chairs, bikinis and everything else. So this is a, a really cool episode. I don't want to take much more time with this. Um, here is Larry Jorgensen to teach us all about Coca-Cola and the Coca-Cola Trail. I'm here today with Larry Jorgensen. Larry, how are you? We are fine and really happy to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on. I know we're going to talk quite a bit about Coca-Cola and, and, and just kind of the, the history behind it, but then also kind of, of how it shaped a, a lot of different communities in, in America. Uh, but before we get to that, just tell us a little bit about your, yourself. Well, basically, I'm what they call in the business an old news dog. Uh, I was brought up in the media, uh, started out at a very young age in newspaper, uh, young age being when I was in high school, went into radio, TV, uh, done all that, have done freelancing, done work for the uh, uh, UPI. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically uh, just an old tired newsman that, decided writing would be the next step, and I'm writing books. I got you. And how long have you been writing books? I think with this whole Coca-Cola thing, you're you're on your second book. So is there other, are there other books outside of that? There was a, a book before that 
It was about a, a sort of a ghost town in Louisiana, similar similar to uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, except uh, Hot Wells, Louisiana, didn't last. And it's an interesting ghost town, and and uh, I wrote a book about that. And I'm now in the process of writing a book about a Great Lakes. Great Lakes shipwreck, and no, it's not the Edmund Fitzgerald, but hmm. uh, it's a fantastic story, and that'll be coming up next. Well, that's that sounds cool. All all of your your books kind of have a a cool history bend to them, which I I always enjoy. But tell us kind of what what inspired you to to maybe research history, and maybe more importantly, research this this Coca Cola history that you have. Well, the Coca Cola thing, I. I'm not a Coca-Cola collector, and there's thousands of them around the country. And um, I, I was interested in two Coca-Cola historical sites, one in Vicksburg, Mississippi, where Coca-Cola was actually first bottled, not Atlanta, Georgia, and another one not too far away in Monroe, Louisiana. And I thought, those are interesting and um, why don't I do a little travel feature about those two sites? So I set out to do a travel story. Well, by the time I got to the second stop, which was Monroe, Louisiana, I realized that what I was after was just just the beginning of what should be a book, that, that this type of thing was ha- had happened all over the United States, and no one had actually written about this aspect of Coca-Cola, and that motivated me to write the first book. The first book was so well received that I started getting phone calls and emails and running into people that say, well, you forgot about. So I started saving uh, information on forgot abouts, and uh, that led to book number two, which is called Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. It's, it's been a great experience uh, as a writer, uh, meeting people, learning things in, in history of, of obviously the world's best-known product, and uh, learning things that, that I, I just was fascinated by. I never assume that, that my listeners know much of, of, of anything. You know, I, they're, they're well-educated, but I never want to just kind of assume anything. This is probably the silliest kind of breakdown that I that I ever have to do but I've I've made people break down bowling and everything else so if we could just briefly tell us exactly what what Coca-Cola is maybe the just a brief history and the the inception I, I assume no one's listening that w- wouldn't know but I, I always like to just kind of break down things to the to the lowest level if possible yeah Coca-Cola was actually started um a gentleman uh, who had been in the Civil War um, and suffered a major injury and was a pharmacist. And he developed a what he thought would be, and it was, uh, a cure for the pain he had suffered and continued to suffer after the war. So he invented this syrup uh, using the uh, cola nut and the cocaine, uh, cocaine the coca leaf not to be confused with cocaine as it has been. And he invented the syrup. He was in, in Georgia and uh, took it, finally took it to a pharmacy, and it was sold as a pain reliever. It mixed a little bit 
you know, with a, a glass of carbonated water, and, and he was doing rather well with that. Well, as it evolved, it had a good flavor, and people wanted to just buy it because it tasted good. And from there, the product the product gained popularity. Uh, the gentleman that invented the syrup uh, later sold the rights to, through his formula, the rights to the Coca-Cola syrup, and, and another person, an, a young entrepreneur, uh, what about selling Coca-Cola syrup in large containers to uh, soda fountains all over the country? Again, with the idea that and these soda fountains were primarily in drugstores because, again, it, it could be used for, as they say, medicinal purposes, or it was a, a very enjoyable beverage. So that was that was his goal. He was he was out there to sell the Coca-Cola syrup to people that would then convert it into a, a carbonated drink to be enjoyed across the country. He, he had no idea that it had potential to be bottled, and never thought it would be. But lo and behold, it sure was. And and in fact, uh, they. Uh, this gentleman, his name was Asa Candler, that owned Coca-Cola at that time, uh, said that he thought bottling Coca-Cola was really a dumb idea. And when two two uh, young entrepreneurs from Chattanooga approached him with to to be, allow them to bottle Coca-Cola, he he at first told them no, and they became persistent. Went back to visit him again. And I think he just finally got up, gave up talking to them, and he said, all right, I'm going to sell you the rights to bottle Coca-Cola throughout the United States, except in Mississippi, where this other gentleman was already doing it. Uh, I'm going to sell you the rights to bottle Coca-Cola throughout the country for one dollar. Mm. And, and the, the story is he never collected the dollar. He just basically wanted to get rid of them. And he told them as he left, if this doesn't work, don't come calling back to me. I think bottling is a backstreet, and that's a quote, a backstreet business. And uh, he he had uh, no faith in it. It was uh, actually uh, took several years before uh, Mr. Kander saw the potential in bottling his Coca-Cola syrup. I, I can't imagine that. I feel like... I don't know how quickly it, it took off after that, but I'm, I assume that he probably kicked himself for a long time about uh, not seeing that potential. Well, not only that, but, you know, the, the two um, and young entrepreneurs, who, by the way, also were lawyers from Chattanooga, went back to Chattanooga with the rights to buy Coca-Cola throughout the United States. Between the two of them, they had $1,500. All of a sudden, they realized, you know, you, you know the story about a dog chasing a car. What do you do when you catch it? Well, they had caught it, and they didn't know what to do with it. They certainly couldn't bottle Coca-Cola throughout the United States for $1,500. Mm-hmm. And there is how it all took off. They said, wait a minute. We've got the rights. Let's start selling territories. And they divided up the country into little pieces. And if you wanted to bottle Coca-Cola in Paducah, Kentucky, 
they would sell you a 50-mile radius around Paducah. Now, they would collect a fee for that. They'd sell you the rights. When you bottled Coca-Cola in your own little bottling business, you were required to use the Coca-Cola syrup. So all Coca-Colas were the same. The interesting thing, when you would use the Coca-Cola syrup, you would buy it, the two that had sold you the territory would get a commission on every gallon of Coca-Cola syrup you bought. So they sold you the territory, but they continued to make money on your work as you bought the syrup. Mm-hmm. Well, it was that, 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 you know, to turning the product into a, basically a franchise that really made it possible for Coca-Cola to grow as fast as it did. It, it just, everybody wanted to get in on the action and they were buying the, the territories, setting up these little bottling plants that were, you know, basically hand-operated, foot-powered bottling machines and, uh, then going out, they'd bottle, bottle one day and go out and try to sell it the next day. And, and that's, that's how it all took off. You know, it, it, it took a long time for Coca-Cola to realize that they should have kept the bottling rights too. And eventually they did buy back a lot of Coca-Cola territories, but it cost them a lot more than a dollar. Yeah, I'm sure. I, 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 I think that's kind of a, a genius model, really, because it made people all over the country be literally invested in the success of, of Coca-Cola bottling. So that was a, a huge thing for sure. One thing that you mentioned earlier that I want to kind of touch on, because you even said it, I don't know whether it's a myth or, or not, but was there cocaine in the early um, you know, Coca-Cola? Because a lot of people still, I still hear that sometimes. Yeah, I get the question every time I do an interview. The, the Coca-Cola, as I said, the formula was a combination of the cola nut and the coca leaf. Now, in processing the leaf, there was a slight trace of what could be considered a cocaine, um, not processed the way cocaine was, but there was enough of a, a carryover from the leaf that they were actually able to detect a trace of what could be considered cocaine in the early bottling of Coca-Cola. Well, it became such an issue that uh, Asa Candler, who at that time still owned Coca-Cola, spent thousands and thousands of dollars, hired uh, chemists and scientists and whatever. He told them, I want no trace of anything that comes anywhere close to cocaine in Coca-Cola, and they succeeded, and this was in the 1920s, in eliminating anything that would have any trace of cocaine in it. But because it was such a big deal in those days that people till this day think, oh, there's cocaine in Coca-Cola. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you what, you, you drink Coca-Cola, it's different than any other any other beverage out there, and you either like it or you don't. I'm not a Coca-Cola salesman. And, you know, I'm not, as they say, addicted to it, but I get my, my share of Coca-Cola, and there's certain uh, new flavors of Coca-Cola I like and certain that I don't. But uh, that's the, the real story is, yes, once upon a time there was a slight trace of what could be considered cocaine, but it was not cocaine as processed 
to to make cocaine where they take the leaf and whatever they do to process it to make that drug. It was simply using the same basic element, the, the coca leaf. I got you. Well, there's there's our answer for for sure. So I do want to I do want to kind of ask you more about the you know the individual bottling, like you were talking about the the territories. You said that Coke uh, Coca Cola as a company bought a lot of the territories back. So I, I guess kind of a, a two-parter. One would be, what is it like now? Have, have they bought all of the territories back and it's not like that? I do know in my my hometown, which we talked about Indianapolis earlier, I'm actually from Kokomo, Indiana, and there's still a Coca-Cola bottling factory there. So I do wonder um, exactly if, if there's still territories or, or what uh, what that process looks like now. Well, the one in Kokomo, in fact, is a, a tremendous family operation that's been around for decades, for generations, and there are a lot of those throughout the country. Uh, Coca-Cola went through, I guess you could call it a buying binge at one point, and, and bought, set up a whole different division where they were buying up Coca-Cola franchises, and what would happen is, you know, after two or three generations uh, making Coca-Cola, maybe the fourth generation just didn't want to do it anymore. The family made enough money, and they thought, we're going fishing, you know. So Coca-Cola started buying up the available territories. Well, what happened, they, they acquired this territory, and after a while, they realized that they did not have the same impact in the communities that the local bottlers had. And since then, they have uh, eliminated that division of Coca-Cola, and actually some of those territories have gone back to some of the existing bottlers. Because really what makes Coca-Cola in a community, and you'll see it come Christmas, uh, Coca-Cola is deeply involved. They're involved in sponsorships, they do scholarships, they build baseball fields, they, they could, whatever is necessary to be involved in that community. Well, it was too much for corporate to handle the way the little guys, the bottlers, and the communities were. And Coca-Cola realized the best thing to do was to get it back into community involvement. So it went from one time uh, being close to 1,500 bottlers across the country. Uh, it went down to a very few, and now it's back up to close to 100 bottlers nationwide. You know, in the early days, you'd find a Coca-Cola plant in every small community because it was not as expensive uh, to bottle as it was to transport in those days. Well, now you have the big highways, and why set up little bottling plants when you could have one big one and and service a, a, a large area with these big semis that you see were going down the road loaded with Coca-Cola. Yeah, yeah. And we mentioned it a little bit before before we started recording, but I want to talk a little bit about kind of what's happening to some of those old uh, bottling plants that maybe aren't aren't uh, producing anymore. We did talk about Indianapolis. I don't know what else is, you know, what some of the other plants are, are doing, but I do think that Indianapolis has done a really cool thing with with a, a bottling facility that was in downtown Indianapolis. 
Uh, it closed back in the in the sixties. It was a, a pretty big, pretty big place. It was about a a, a block large. Um, kind of, it was Art Deco style. For a while, actually, the the city schools put their buses there because there was big garages. Um, but it but it had a a really cool um, like mixing room and Art Deco theme. Now, just recently, about five years ago, a, a uh, architect bought it and made it basically a, a whole kind of new neighborhood downtown. It's called Bottle. Right. It's called Bottle Works. They they made yeah they made the um, kind of the offices that were Art Deco into a hotel. They made the old uh, Coca Cola garage where they where they uh, put the the trucks into the garage food hall so now it's an indoor food hall coca-cola uh the name coca-cola is still on all of the all of the buildings so you can still see that history but it's a really cool thing i know you want to kind of talk a little bit about that but tell us about maybe a, a little of that and then also uh what some of those other bottling plants around the the country have have uh evolved into well just to briefly to, to add to your comments about indianapolis when that plant was built, when it opened, it was one of the most beautiful Coca-Cola plants in the country. And a tribute to it, Coca-Cola corporate sent many people to Indianapolis to be there for the grand opening of that plant. And for many years, it was the plant. If you wanted to see a Coca-Cola plant, the best around, it was Indianapolis. Um, and what they've done downtown with the bottle works and the, and the neighboring uh, businesses that have evolved around it. It's pretty fantastic to see that continue. But, you know, the essence of the book I wrote is to look at the plants that have become used for other things where you can go. You can go see, and if, well, we're not talking about a plant where there's a, a, a group of lawyers that have offices. We're talking about, for example, in Paducah, Kentucky. The plant there is another beautiful plant that uh, now is a, a kind of a little entertainment center. There's a, a, a brew pub in there. There's a pizza house. There's a couple gift shops. And it's a gorgeous plant to go through. It's become uh, one of Kentucky's top tourist attractions. Uh, there's a, a plant in uh, several plants that have been uh, converted into museums. Uh, there's, uh, there's one in uh, Georgia that uh, was a fallen down. The city was about ready to tear it down plant. And uh, a young man who was a Coca-Cola collector who uh, got his father involved with him, uh, they were able to, uh, to buy the plant and, uh, and convert it into a Coca-Cola museum. It's Cedartown, Cedartown, Georgia. It's a beautiful plant, and it's got a lot, um, a lot of old Coca-Cola memorabilia. And if you're into into that, there's a, a good museum to go see. Now we talked about Vicksburg, Mississippi. That was the place where Coca-Cola was actually first bottled. That was bottled five years before Mr. Candler actually gave the guys in Chattanooga the permission to bottle. And that facility where that Coca-Cola was first bottled is still there. It's been uh, refurbished. It is an old soda fountain, candy shop, and so forth. 
you can visit that and you can see some of the old uh, foot-powered uh, bottling equipment. Uh, there are uh, all sorts of historic photos there, including uh, a photo of, uh, and it's in, it's in my book as well, a photo of the person I called the world's first Coca-Cola delivery man, because, in fact, he was. They weren't bottling it anywhere else. And here's this uh, young black gentleman on a uh, wagon load of Coca-Cola bottles about to go out and make deliveries. Well, there was no place else in the world that was bottling Coca-Cola but Vicksburg, Mississippi. So you've got that. You've got... Uh, You've got Coca-Cola buildings that have become little boutique shopping malls. Uh, just a variety of things that have brought them back to life. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. I think that's a, a thing that we don't necessarily do enough as, I guess, as a American. That's a whole other topic, but just kind of repurpose our history rather than just tear things and tear things down and, and, and build something new. So I always like to see that when, when things are repurposed. It just adds so much more character and charm to, to kind of those new businesses that you were you were talking about. Uh, but you, you do – you well, did – go ahead. I was going to say, you know, there's a common Coca-Cola memory. Uh, when I talk to people, older people that have a Coca-Cola memory, the one thing that was almost universal – in the Coca-Cola plants was the big window where you could stand and watch the Coca-Cola being bottled. And most of the time, if a youngster was standing there watching, chances are somebody on that bottling line would grab a couple bottles and take them outside and say, here, have one on us. It's it's a memory I run into all the time in, in doing the book of people who say, oh, I remember, I remember watching the Coca-Cola being bottled. It's, mm-hmm. it's just one of those Coca-Cola memories that they created when they designed those buildings. Yeah, and you mentioned with those, uh, you know, with some of those museums and, and the, the history that there's a lot of memorabilia. So I want, I do want to talk about kind of Coca-Cola memorabilia and then also just collecting coca-cola's kind of put their their name on anything from you know from coolers to and uh beachwear and and all kinds of stuff so why do you think that coca-cola i guess has has put themselves out there as much as they have and then why do you think it's been such a almost a cultural phenomenon for decades that that people collected i had a my my mother had a friend when i was growing up that she had a whole room of her house that was nothing but Coca-Cola, everything, chairs, everything. So why why do you think that's the case? Because beyond maybe some beer companies, I do think there's some that, that do that, but I, that, there's just not a lot of, you know, people aren't collecting, you know, craft products. So I just wonder why that's the case. Coca-Cola is without a doubt the world's best collected brand. Uh, they have international Coca-Cola Collectors Organization has uh, thousands of collectors, mostly in the United States, but, you know, I hear from them in Australia. I'm, we're doing an interview. I did an interview in Dubai because Coca-Cola is pop, popular there. People collect it. It's amazing. And why? Your question was why. You know, it's that, it's that product that when you associate with it 
there's a good memory. It's something that, you know, just like there are people that collect, that are beer collectors, beer can collectors, beer sign collectors. Again, it's a pleasant memory. Something good happened in your life, and it was because of that Coca-Cola. You know, that's, you know, I say Coca-Cola kidnapped Christmas, and certainly Santa Claus, because Coca-Cola's artist created the Santa Claus that we have learned to recognize as being Santa Claus. That was back in the 1930s when Coca-Cola's artist came out with a, a more pleasing, pleasing looking Santa and it, it, it has become the Santa Claus we know. And it's, you know, from there, I mean, Coca-Cola, you'll see it soon. You're going to start to see the big Coca-Cola semis all decorated up coming to your town with uh, lights and gifts and Coca-Cola for everybody. It's They, they literally have, have and it's not just in the United States now. It's in it's in Europe and and in other countries uh, where they the big trucks show up at Christmas time. And and you know Coca Cola. How about the Charlie Brown Christmas? If it wouldn't have been for Coca Cola coming forward and sponsoring the very first. Charlie Brown Christmas, it wouldn't have happened. Nobody else wanted it. Everybody thought it was a joke. Coca-Cola said, no, this is what we are. This is what Christmas is. And they sponsored it and it continues until this day. We have Charlie Brown Christmas because of Coca-Cola. And <laughs> so, you know, why do people collect it? This the Coca-Cola collecting, if you have the original of a Coca-Cola item, not a reproduction, you've got something that's of value. There's been a lot of reproductions. I'm, I'm sure as Christmas comes around, you can go into your local big box store and you're going to see Coca-Cola items um, available, you know, as part of the Christmas decor. And if you look at them closely and read the back, they're reproductions of the originals. When, when uh, back in the, when Coca-Cola was first being bottled, they were bottling, the bottlers were bottling in anything they could find. There was no universal bottle. Well, as Coca-Cola became more popular, more su- successful, other people, other companies started doing knockoffs. There was, you know, there was Chiro Cola. There was Coca-Cola spelled with K's and so forth. And it became very easy to confuse people. So Coca-Cola said, wait a minute. We are going to have a bottle that is our bottle that's patented that when you pick it up, you know it's Coca-Cola. And so they made a challenge to the bottle manufacturers in the United States. We are going to authorize one bottle and one bottle only, and we were, we are open for competition. Well, there were six bottlers that entered the competition. There was one bottler, by the way, from Indiana. Terre Haute, Indiana, the Root uh, Glasswork Company, won the competition and developed the bottle that became what we know now as the universal Coca-Cola bottle. Well, from there, we now have Coca-Cola bottle collectors because in the first early days of bottling, if you recall, the, the plant that bottled the Coca-Cola 
their name was on the bottom of the bottle. So the smaller the plant, the fewer the bottles, the more valuable the bottle. But the bottle that sold for over $150,000 was one of six the, um, that was produced as a prototype by the Root Glass Company in Terre Haute, Indiana. That bottle was one of six that was presented at the competition and won the award to become the Coca-Cola bottle. What was supposed to happen, everybody brought that was involved brought six bottles. The ones that didn't win were destroyed. The ones, the one that did win, the bottles by root of Terre Haute, there was one that was saved in the Coca-Cola archives. The other five were supposed to be destroyed. Well, one wasn't. And that bottle came back into existence about two years ago at an auction in California, and it went for $150,000 plus. The reason we know that it was, in fact, the one remaining bottle from the uh, original six is because the date on the bottom of the bottle is 1905. That bottle was not used in Coca-Cola business until 1906. 1905 is when they had the competition. 1905 is when the bottles were all supposed to be destroyed, except the one that went to the archives and the one that somehow was able to escape. And that bottle, and I don't know who won the auction. I tried to find out, but that bottle is sitting in somebody's uh, secure environment right now, and it's worth at least $150,000. That's crazy. And who knew that, I guess, Indiana played such a, a pivotal role when it comes to a nice bottling facility here in Indianapolis? And then the first bottle, I had no idea that Indiana has such Coca-Cola history. We're kind of seeing that you've mentioned it a lot, but just they've they've built their company around community and community experience. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's a it's a drink, but they've made it more than that. They've made it kind of an experience, even in the the uh, commercials they do now. You know, in their whole share a Coke campaign, it was less about the drink. That's almost at the very end that they even talk about it being Coca Cola. They just try to show you the the pleasant and the happy uh, memories and the happy experiences you have with Coke. So it's kind of a, a side thing to, to happy memories, so to speak, and that's just a, a really smart way to do things. Well, and that's, again, it goes back to your question of why do people collect, why do people feel so warm about Coca-Cola? It's memories. You know, we don't, we sometimes in life, we don't get enough good memories, and, and when you see something that reminds you of them, you want to bring it close to you, and that's that's what they do. Absolutely, yeah. And and one last piece to kind of the the whole Coca-Cola, I guess, history in the United States is you know Coca-Cola murals throughout uh, you know the the country in different areas. So talk a little bit about those those uh, murals and and maybe you know their their importance to, to communities. Well, looking at the history of Coca-Cola murals and signs, no doubt Coca-Cola 
believed from the very start in outdoor sign advertising. Back in the very early years when uh, Asa Candler was still involved with Coca-Cola, he once boasted in when he was on a trip in Hollywood, he once boasted, someday you will not be able to make a movie outside without there being a Coca-Cola sign in the background. Well, he came pretty close on that one. But since then, again, it's memories. I have talked with, have visited uh, places throughout the United States where where municipalities, organizations are raising money to have Coca-Cola signs restored. There was just one done in Albany in Michigan. It, ultimately, it cost over $150,000 to restore the sign. And the reason it cost so much, it was on a building that was hanging over the Kalamazoo River. The building was in bad shape. They had to redo the building. And they they went to a lot of effort to restore this particular sign. You say, why? You say, because it's part of our community. It's memories. It's history. We want to save it. And you see it, it it's going on constantly. In fact, I had a, a, a person contact me last week where they're redoing a Coca-Cola sign, and they said, we read about how it was done in your book, and that's what we want to do here. And it's just amazing. People just, it's part of their community. They believe in it. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really cool. And you, you mentioned the, the, the books several times. I want to kind of just uh, allow you to speak just a little bit more about those, those books. Tell us exactly again what they're called, um, where people can pick them up and just a, a brief kind of synopsis of, of what exactly people are going to learn from those books. Well, the book, uh, the first one is called The Coca-Cola Trail. The second one is simply Return to the Coca-Cola Trail. And they are, in fact, about people and places in the history of Coca-Cola. And it's really a combination of being a travel guide and and history. It will tell you where there is something that is Coca-Cola. And when you get there, you can see it. You can, you can touch, feel, you can go in, whatever. And we're going to tell you why it's there. We spent a lot of time. There's several hundred uh, historic photos in the books. Uh, we spent a lot of time researching with family and with historical societies to get the photos. Uh, even the covers on the book have got uh, covers of old Coca-Cola plants and, and vehicles and things like that. So it's the purpose is really to to get other people to know that there's a lot of that out there, and it's it's there to see. It's there to see, and it's free. You can go look. Now, where do you get the book? Well, the easiest way is to go to the website, which is simply the thecocacolatrail.com. Uh, both books are listed there. Um, they're also uh, available. It just amazes me where they show up. They're in country stores. They are in museums, gift shops. In fact, we talk about Indiana. There is a grocery store in Terre Haute, Basler's Grocery Store, who has who sells the books. There's a RV park there that has them. 
the the new museum at Terre Haute has talked about having them in there, and we we think they'll be there soon. But you'll find that almost any place, any little country store, where there's a Coca-Cola memorabilia sign of some sort, or something Coca-Cola memorabilia, chances are that's where you're going to find the book. Uh, and and we're just really pleased with the way people have accepted the book. Um, uh, you know, if, if you travel Route 66, and a lot of people do for memories, there are numerous places along uh, Highway Route 66 that are Coca-Cola or soda fountain or 50s. A lot of 50s soda fountains have the books. And uh, it just fits in with the, the memory that, that those businesses are trying to uh, relate in their business. But the, the easiest way, go to the website. We'll even sign one to you if if you if you buy it on the website. Yeah, the Coca-Cola Trail dot com. No, awesome. The you know I guess obviously Coke is a is a huge huge company. Um, I mean, has there been any response or any reception um, from you know the the actual company to the work that you're doing? Well, the the bottlers, the individual bottlers have supported what I'm doing because nobody's done it before. It's always been, and I read, I've read a lot of the Coca-Cola corporate uh, books, you know, the, some of them the tell-all books and that type of thing. But um, I tried deliberately not to go to Coca-Cola archives or to work Coca-Cola corporate. Not that I don't like them, but I thought these stories have been told and they're going to give me an answer based on corporate. I want to, I want to talk to the, the families that started bottling Coca-Cola back in the early 1900s. That's where I want my story to start. And it's not that, you know, Coca-Cola uh, has licensed my books. I'm approved by them. Uh, but I just tried not to get into that corporate mode. It would have been easy to just go to Coca-Cola corporate and say, well, open your files and I'll write some, some stories about these different bottlers that I find in the files. But that's not the, that's not what I was after. I wasn't after corporate endorsed. I wanted to talk to the guy who, you know, how many, how many times did the bottle explode until he got until he got it right in filling, you know, and, and the guy who, uh, I'll never forget the story about the, the thing, it was the guy that started the uh, bottling in uh, Paducah. Um, he bottled his first case and he was so proud of it, he took it to the local grocery store, uh, who, gentleman who he happened to know, and he said, I'm going to, this is a great product, I'm just going to leave it here, I'll be back. In a couple of days, and I'll pick up the money and bring you another case. Well, he went back in a couple of days, and his case of Coca-Cola was being used as a doorstop, and nothing had been sold. So they had to be pretty creative to get people to try this new drink. What is this Coca-Cola? And it wasn't an easy sell until they got people to try it. And from there, it took off. But every bottler had a different story as to what they would do to to make the product uh, a success in their own market, and that was the fun part. And and you learned some of them had their 
disagreements with Coca-Cola corporate, you know, so you learned about that, and, and you understood it's part of business, but they were all pulling together for the same end result. We want to sell Coca-Cola, and they did. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a huge thing, and I think the, the I look forward to, to checking out the, the book more and seeing some of those stories. I think it kind of just goes back to what I said you know, in the beginning. Coca-Cola was is is as successful as it is just because they you know the model had so many different people across the country just invested in the the success of of it. So it's pretty easy to I, I guess find success when you've got so many other people that are are rooting for you and you know their 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 pocketbooks. Uh, you know, uh, benefit from it as well. So urge people to check out that book. And you know, it's been an, an absolute pleasure speaking with you about this. I'm sure you've you've got a, a million other stories that you could tell, but I want people to do ch- to, to check out that book and, and see some some more of them. So I really appreciate your time today. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to to share the stories. And you know, I I could go on forever, and we we both wish I hadn't. So. Uh, I appreciate it, and uh, we'll keep you posted on our, on our next adventures. Absolutely. So that was my interview with Larry Jorgensen. What a cool guy with just a, a lot of, of cool things to share. He's just got so much knowledge on Coca-Cola, and I can tell just with the talk of, of other books that he's got a lot of knowledge on a lot of other really cool American history. So interested to, to maybe hear more from him at some point. But hope you learned a lot about Coca-Cola. Whether you already knew most of this, I, I doubt that that's the case unless you're a huge uh, Coca-Cola buff and, and maybe you have one of those rooms in your house uh, collecting. But uh, I, we, we just learned about kind of the the marketing genius of Coca-Cola. They've, they've just invested in the community by having bottlers that are invested with their money in each of these communities. So... I thought it was really cool to just to hear how Coca-Cola became what it is with that dollar uh, dollar buy to start bottling and, and why that made them start selling territories, uh, what they've done with a lot of different uh, old Coca-Cola factories and the repurposing them for other things. You know, the bottle works here in Indianapolis that I talked about, I go to the garage food hall quite frequently. It's an old, you know, Coca-Cola uh, garage where they, they put all of the, uh, the the bottling trucks. And then I haven't stayed at the hotel, given I live here, but uh, that's in the old, uh, you know, the old laboratories and stuff for, for Coca-Cola. So just cool things that they've done. We all like nostalgia, and, and Coca-Cola certainly gives us that. And uh, it's something that I think uh, future generations will really, really enjoy as well. So do check out those books. He was nice enough to send me a, a copy of both of them. Really cool pictures in them, really cool history in them. You know, they it's laid out with each individual city and uh, talking about you know the different history there. So I think you'll enjoy that. I think you know most most listeners here in the United States will uh, find a, a facility relatively close to them. Um, but uh, I, I do think uh, it's a cool book, and I know that uh, those will uh, that uh, like those history type of things will enjoy it. Check out those books. Of course, check us out. If you're not already following us on Instagram, what are you doing? No, I'm just kidding. But uh, do do follow us on Instagram, Not in a Podcast, jacksneff.com, 
Not in the Huff with Jackson Huff on Facebook. Go like us, go comment, go subscribe, all of that on our podcast. We always appreciate that. But until next time, take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.